I seem to remember, though I couldn't exactly pin down when it happened, but sometime at school, I was sort of taught that um, a good story should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. We, get, we kind of expect that, don't we? That there's a certain format that we're used to, and it, and it, and it has that. Now, um, when we come to a Bible reading, we quite often expect that too. But there's an issue, because it's actually part of a much larger story. You know, where do you actually time the start of a reading? You know, I suppose we could go right to Genesis 1, verse 1. You know, read the whole thing. All the way through to the end of Revelations. And the reading would be in there. And we'd have it. It might take us a long time. We might not fit that into the normal one-hour service. Unless we're very, very fast. And even then, none of us would understand at that speed of reading. But we do need to remember that a passage from the Bible that we read is part of something much bigger. It's the fact that we're used to reading it, different bits, and bringing it all together that piece it such that we understand context, understand meaning, understand the overall message that we can have. When we're um, watching something at home on the telly, we quite often see that a program has a bit of a, a teaser before the titles. It's, it's something of the program comes, something of last week. In last week's episode, you get the bit. Coming soon. And then you get the titles. And actually by that stage, maybe even through the titles and the music, the type of music they've chosen, the pictures that they show you, the words that they display on the screen, you understand where the story is going. If you had a sort of Miss Marple theme tune and then suddenly realised you are watching Star Trek... You would know something was wrong that you'd fallen asleep in between. But it's that connection that gets you into it. We see something as we come to the reading tonight. I started at chapter 8, verse 1, and you're kind of in the middle of a sentence. You're kind of, what are we doing here? It sort of starts with, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And then the next day is where we get into. And uh, we might think, well, surely that verse 1 should be the end of chapter 7. But then we might note, 
from the tiny little bit of print that's in the Bible. But there's a whole bit of a question around this passage completely. It says, the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 to 8.11. It's not there. Some of the manuscripts have it in a completely different place. Some of the manuscripts pop it after the resurrection. Now, that's an unusual thing. It didn't quite connect there. Does it? We, we, we don't understand it in that context. We understand it in this sort of place. Some have it in a place where um, immediately before Judas goes off to talk and start negotiating about the pieces of silver, David understands maybe a bit more. You know, makes a bit more sense. But it is in the way of John, it is in our canon, it is included here for our purpose. It fits in to where we have it tonight. Though I don't think that actual bit of positioning matters that much what does matter is that little first verse that gives us the way in is something about Jesus' character he's one who will withdraw to the Mount of Olives he will go and have rest he will spend time with the Lord his heavenly father and he will come back ready for the new day ready to engage again in where people are he's been to the Mount of Olives he returns to the temple a new opportunity for Jesus to teach those that are gathering a new opportunity to share something about what the kingdom is intended to be a new opportunity to push boundaries and say you know that thing that you're thinking well have you thought about it properly and so Jesus goes and a crowd forms around him and he sits down he sits down and he teaches them he, he's not there just for a brief moment a bit like this morning's passage. David sat down and prayed. Here, Jesus sits down with the crowd and begins to share. But the new day with opportunities for Jesus to share and for people to learn also gives a new opportunity for others to challenge. And the woman is brought in, accused of adultery. 
And Jesus can probably immediately smell something fishy. It tells us in the text that this is a trap, that it's a bit of a setup. But there's something more to it. It's not just Jesus that they're trying to catch out. They've already caught the woman. You see, it begins with a bit of a problem because it's rather hard for someone to commit adultery by themselves. Where's the man? It says in the law that a woman who's committed adultery must be stoned. Well, actually it says the couple. And it doesn't necessarily say stoned except in certain circumstances. There is a bit of death penalty. Leviticus and Deuteronomy are quite clear in their bit of teaching, but there's something else going on. You see, as is the norm, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, are bringing their interpretation, their wording, their understanding. And uh, they're trying to say what the law says in a way that suits their purpose. There's a little matter that for somebody to have been accused of a crime, there must have been two witnesses under the law. We don't see the witnesses presented to give their story to Jesus and if there's two witnesses one might also want to ask why neither of these people stood in to prevent the law being broken and the more you think about it 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 seems almost as if the the woman was uh, unwittingly set up with a co-respondent that was allowed to flee the scene she herself was in a trap and in turn is being used as bait to trick Jesus. Will he pronounce the death penalty, which is in accordance with the law, and in doing so be seen to be a hypocrite for what he's been teaching the past few days about love, about forgiveness, about things being new? Or will he go against the law in this matter? Whatever the circumstances of the woman's life, whatever has happened, whoever her husband is, whoever that other man was she is now at the feet of Jesus a sinner just as we are and she will be judged as we will be judged with mercy and grace and in a way that justice is done And Jesus does something 
rather interesting. He announces the death penalty. Let whoever is without sin cast the first stone. You see, he's gone, throw the stone. But yet, puts in that let whoever is without sin into the conversation. And at the same time, the crowd disperses. Their voices are no longer baying for blood. It would seem the question of who among them is without sin has put a different taste into their mouth. What Jesus had in the meantime, from his sitting down position, written in the sand, we don't know. It's unknown. Preachers and commentators uh, speculate far and wide on that. You know, there's uh, nearly as many different views on this, nearly as much speculation as the range of views that the guests on 24-hour news channel managed to put into 55 minutes, the bit of time that's not the weather and the headlights. You know, the rest of that is just pure speculation. You know, don't bring you some of them. You know, is it Ten Commandments? Is it a simple doodle that's not actually writing at all? Was it a list of names of those standing nearby? A notification of the judgment? Or something else entirely? And the fact is, we don't know. We're never going to know, right? Well, we might discover one day in heaven, but it's even that. You know. But whatever it was, whatever triggered in their mind from Jesus drawing in the dust and saying that whoever without sin, it makes them think. It makes them open their eyes and go, Oh dear, I'll just um, leave this here and uh, merge into the background and dissolve away. How often I wonder, do we think through our initial thoughts? How often do we jump in and get there without having processed the data or thought about the scriptures and how that applies to what we're saying, what we're doing, how we're living, and what that actually means for us. Because that's what's happening here. They they suddenly realise that they're as likely to be stood there at the front with other people ready to throw stones at them. 
how often do we ponder about the greater context and where God would have us go that gets us more fully into God's ways Jesus and the women are left alone all who Jesus had been teaching before the Pharisees arrived with the women all that crowd that he'd been teaching have gone they dispersed at the same time as the teachers of the law everyone recognised that there's something in their lives not even the disciples are present Indeed, they're actually quite often absent. You know, we like to think of Jesus going round with the disciples. But then when we look at the text, we see that they're not always there. And they don't witness every conversation. And so we don't know who does witness this one. Whether it is the woman that later tells Jesus his friends, or whether it is Jesus that tells his disciples what was said either way there's something of that death penalty that is taken from her and she is to go forth uncondemned with the instruction to sin no more indeed go now and leave your life of sin. This is the love of Jesus. He knows that the punishment of sin is death. That's what the law requires. But when we are at his feet, he lifts the sentence... And gives us new life. And gives us new life. And tells us, go now and leave your life of sin. We are accepted. We are forgiven. But we are also required to live in a, a new frame. his love and the passage makes us reject the actions of the crowd that are judgmental that's part of the sin that we are to go and not do again God loves everyone. But we also see here that he rejects behaviour which is both intolerant, like the crowd, and which is against his will, like the woman.
challenge for us as Christians in the early 21st century Western society where many Christians and their denominations are reinterpreting scripture is to know how culturally we don't throw stones. But at the same time, allow Jesus to say, go and sin no more. Because society as a whole reject increasingly the concept of sin. Society now perhaps has that concept that we see in the people of Corinth that Paul writes to. People that say, I have the right to do anything. And Paul does not directly dispute that, yeah, you can do anything. But does point out that not everything is beneficial or constructive. That crops up a couple of times in 1 Corinthians, both in chapter 6 and chapter 10. Individuals have a right within the law to do as they please. And some may see their actions as both beneficial and constructive. Though we might not necessarily see it as within the will of God. But for us, any response must not be in the attitude of the Pharisees or Sadducees took the woman to the temple court seeking judgment. But rather, we need to be ahead of that game. We need to encourage people of every background to join the crowd as they are in verse 2. That everyone may come and be where Jesus is sat, teaching and sharing and proclaiming God's love. Gathered around, listening and discovering the full depth of who our God truly is. We are people in a challenging time, in a challenging part of the world, where there can be much confusion and much, oh, well, it should be here and it should be there and we should be doing this. But above all, what we have to do is speak of God's love and seek the coming of his kingdom. Amen.